You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm David McKechnie. Donald Trump is in hot water again, this time over intelligence he shared with Russian officials at the Oval Office. How serious is this new crisis? I ask Suzanne Lynch. Iranians go to the polls this Friday for the country's first presidential election since the 2015 nuclear agreement. That agreement was aimed at restricting its nuclear activities in exchange for the easing of sanctions on the Iranian economy. How has the country fared since then and what impact will it have on this week's vote? I'm joined by Iran specialist Eli Garamaya. Later on, Isabel Gorst will join me from Moscow to report on civil unrest around an extraordinary plan by the city's mayor to demolish thousands of homes and resettle more than a million residents in new properties. Will the proposal go ahead or will growing opposition derail it? But first to Washington and Suzanne Lynch. Uh, Suzanne, most of our listeners will have heard about this new scandal uh, involving Donald Trump and the administration. But can you just fill us in briefly on what has happened? Well, just a week after President Trump controversially fired the FBI director, James Comey, another scandal has engulfed the White House. Uh, On Monday evening, the Washington Post first reported that the president had disclosed classified information to Russia during a meeting with the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov last week in the Oval Office. Um, Now, that meeting itself had already been controversial. It took place just a day after the Comey sacking and um, controversially photos emerged of a smiling Mr. Trump alongside uh, the Russian foreign minister and Russian ambassador, even though journalists based at the White House, US journalists were not allowed into that meeting. So this report uh, was suggested that Trump shared this information that crucially had been given to the US by another ally, a Middle Eastern ally, um, and it was highly classified. It seemed that it was something to do with uh, the proposed laptop ban uh, on flights between the US and other countries and about uh, the capability of terrorists for for developing uh, laptop bans and some information about possible attacks and where they might be located. Uh, so that's the thrust of the issue. Tr- Trump came out on Tuesday morning tweeting about the issue and effectively confirmed that it had, ha- had happened uh, but defended his right to do so. I, I think uh, at this stage we're, we're uh, well used to the idea that the, the, the more, more quickly and more uh, vociferously uh, Trump tweets the more serious the issue is, he he was out straight away this morning, as you say, mm. as you said, and quite aggressive in, yeah. in defending himself. But may land himself in a bit more trouble with with his tweets. No, exactly. It's almost an echo of exactly what happened last week, where when he sacked Comey, the White House came out with a story saying that a line saying that the reason he had been dismissed was because of his handling of the email scandal involving Hillary Clinton. And then a few days later, Trump came out and said, well, in fact, he had been considering firing Comey anyway for some time, and he mentioned the Russia investigation. And again, this week, we've seen exactly the same thing happen. On Monday evening, General McMaster, the National Security Advisor, came out and briefed the press and uh, denied uh, the reports that had emerged in the Washington Post and New York Times. The next morning, Donald Trump took to Twitter to say, actually, in fact, he had done done this um, and, and simply defended his right to do so. So we're seeing Trump, not only the whole question of his lack of discipline and his judgment about making these comments on Twitter, but also the fact that he's using this to kind of switch the story that he is um, that is coming from the White House on this. And we can see a real sense of chaos within the West Wing, within the administration, with a mixed signals coming out um, hour by hour, really, as the White House tries to respond to these series of controversies that just keep coming. 
What has the response been from Republicans, not just to this, but but also uh, the Comey um, sacking last week and, and the bigger picture, um, you know, of recent events involving Russia? What, how have they responded? Well, I think this is a crucial issue, really, because for all the talk of impeachment or moving against Donald Trump, really, it's going to come down to how the Republicans handle the US president. After all, they do control both houses of Congress. Now, so far, they've essentially backed their man. Um, we saw last week in the wake of the Comey scandal that Richard um, Senator John McCain came out in the hours after the scandal broke the dismissal and uh, criticised Trump. But by the following day, we had Senator Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, saying they did, he didn't feel that a special prosecutor needed to be appointed. Similarly, with the uh, with the controversy over the leaking of the or the sharing of classified information with Russia, um, we have seen some uh, some Republicans criticise uh, Trump. Uh, Senator Bob Corker, for example, but we still haven't seen a really strong response from people like Paul Ryan, the Speaker, for example. So really, I mean, I think the Republicans here have a huge responsibility, um, but we may not see them moving against their president really until perhaps the midterm elections. They're coming up next next year. And if the Republicans feel that they could be in for a really big fall there, if they feel they're losing public support for Trump, well, then we may uh, see them moving against the president. But at the moment so far, it seems that they're willing to to ride this this one out at the moment. You might imagine a large chunk of, of Trump's base would hate the idea of Russians getting access to U.S. intelligence. Uh, is there is there any sense of that, or or is is uh, is the war with the media um, Trump everything? Well, I do think there there are two different narratives. Uh, this is a very divided country, and it, you know, looking at Fox News, for example, on Monday evening when these reports came out, they didn't even they didn't have much coverage on this issue. They they were discussing other things. Whereas uh, the, the sharing of the classified information was dominating uh, more left-wing, if you like, news channels. So we do always have to keep that in mind, I think. I think also what we will see is the White House and, you know, their supporters in the media really focusing on the leaking of the information. Now, they do have a point here. There is an issue that information has been leaked to the media and that what happened in this meeting has now been uh, leaked to the media, um, presumably possibly from members of the intelligent community. So I think that's a valid point. But obviously, most people feel, well, the actions of the president trump this, if you like. Um, but I do think we're going to see the White House pushing that. They've consistently done that throughout all of the scandals. They have said, well, the issue really here is the leaking and how this information gets to the public domain rather than the substantive issue in question. So I think we'll see more of that over the next few days as the White House tries to try and get some kind of control on this kind of never-ending uh, narrative. It seems like a quite a, an ineffective strategy, really, doesn't it? Le leaking versus um, possible, um, you know, treason, I suppose, if you're going to put them on opposite sides. Mm. Um, but, uh, I mean, is it, do you think it's effective? Mm. Or, or, or um, he obviously, they are persistent with that, with that line, obviously. I think to some sectors of society it is. I think, um, you know, some people, particularly with the sacking of James Comey, a lot of conservative commentators absolutely supported Trump's move to sack Comey. They took it as face value, if you like. Uh, they said that Comey um, was questionable and had and needed to go. And there are a lot of people, obviously, in the Democratic community uh, who believe that too. Um, so I do think that that narrative is a powerful one that Trump will continue to push. But in saying that, you know, this may be... We We've there's been so many kind of new developments in this week after week where people think, is, has he gone too far this time? This issue does seem to be particularly serious. The idea that the president who has access to so, so much of this classified information is prepared to share that with 
with a country that is on the opposite side of the Syrian civil war, essentially, to America. Um, and the very fact that the president thinks he's in his right to do that is, is is worrying. So I think the conversation now is actually becoming about his competence. You know, is this a man completely out of his depth? Uh, and what can be done to address that? There's a lot of discussion, and I think it's, it's very well placed, about actually his advisors and this sense that there seems to be nobody close to him who can speak to the president, and uh, that we're hearing reports of advisors not being able you know, to bring him bad news, as it were. I think the figure of General McMaster is interesting here, the, the national security advisor who was appointed after Trump fired Mike Flynn. He's becoming an increasingly important figure in the Trump administration. He was sent out to bat for Trump on Monday evening. And it does seem that at the moment, at least, uh, Trump uh, respects this man who's very experienced in the national security world. But I think there is a call now that even if Trump was to maybe appoint people who actually have some more knowledge about this, um, that it could kind of limit the damage of what he now seems to be able to do as president. Suzanne Lynch, thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. Now to Iran, where 56 million people are eligible to vote for a new president this Friday in an election that will be closely watched around the world. Hassan Rouhani, the incumbent and moderate cleric who oversaw the nuclear agreement with world powers in 2015, is being challenged by conservative rivals on both foreign policy and economic issues. I'm joined by Iran specialist Eli Garanmaya from the European Council on Foreign Relations. Eli, how big an issue is the nuclear deal in the campaign and what are the other matters on the minds of voters this week? Well, the, the nuclear deal is really the, the main litmus test for this elections. Um, and all candidates have focused on the deal, but not so much in the way that we saw it, for example, in the US presidential elections, where candidates were actually questioning if they would adhere to the deal itself. But it's actually candidates are proposing ways that they are going to manage the implementation of the deal in order to reap the biggest economic benefits to ordinary Iranians. Uh, The bigger issue beyond the nuclear deal itself is actually uh, the economic conditions inside Iran. So while the current government has managed to really significantly reduce inflation rates from around 40% to less than 10% in their four years in government, they really haven't been able to tackle the the mass unemployment and growing social inequality. So these elections have really focused on these economic issues. And and why is it that that, uh, people haven't seen any benefits since or very few benefits since, since the sanctions were eased uh, at the start of last year? Well, there are a number of reasons. Um, you know, first of all, we have to remember that the implementation, so the sanctions easing process of the deal, have only really taken place a year and a half ago. So it's going to take time for, for the economy to be revived after that. But besides from that, there are two major sticking points. One of them comes from Iran itself, in that to be attractive for foreign investments to be attractive even for domestic investments, there needs to be some significant market economic reforms happening in the country. And it has started to take place, but it's going to take some time. Secondly, and probably the biggest factor holding back a lot of Western companies, including those in Europe, from going back into the Iranian market is essentially the environment of um, overcompliance with sanctions uh, in the U.S. remit, uh, but also it, it's like cautiousness about going back to Iran when we have President Trump in the White House who's vowed to actually dismantle the nuclear deal. So these companies need a bit more time to build confidence and reassurance before they, they go into the Iranian market and actually pump some growth uh, and employment into, that, into the country. 
Sure. Now, can you tell us a little bit about the, the leading candidates uh, for Friday and, and what the polling is suggesting? So essentially, it's going to be uh, a race between the incumbent President Rouhani uh, and his conservative opponent, a gentleman called Ebrahim Raisi. Um, now, there are several other candidates, but um, we expect a few of them to drop out by Friday election to give support to either of those two candidates that I mentioned. And also these two other candidates that are now front runners in the polls that are uh, being conducted domestically. Um, essentially, Rouhani is running on a campaign of more moderate policies, uh, not too much to the reformist side and not too much into the conservative side. But he's, uh, he's making it prime uh, issue is economic reopening of Iran to the international markets and also market reforms inside of the country. He's also trying to appeal to the, the reformist voters um, by talking a lot about civil liberties, about equality of uh, rights amongst genders, ethnicities and races. The other candidate, his main opponent, Ebrahim Raisi, comes from a, um, a judiciary background. He was a former prosecutor in Iran. Um, he is seen as being quite close to certain factions within the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and also the Iran Supreme Leader. Um, and he is running much more on a platform of uh, economic policies that relate to subsidies, so handing out more money to the masses. And he's trying to appeal to the the, the provincial voters, mostly in the rural areas. Um, so it's, 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 you know, he's trying to appeal to some of the textbook populist uh, appeals inside of the country. Um, so essentially, we have one candidate that is very much pro-engagement with the with the international community, including the West, and he's trying to revive the economy through international uh, investment uh, versus a candidate who's much more inward-looking, uh, both in terms of foreign policy and economic policies. And are they neck and neck, or or does Rouhani uh, is he tipped to be re-elected? So it's um, the numbers are quite soft actually at the moment. Um, they are, you know, Rouhani is in the lead, um, but this his his win in the first round of the elections on Friday are not an assured uh, assured uh, matter by any means. There's quite a lot of voters that are still undecided, and they're likely to tip the the balance either way. So essentially, if if a, if either of these gentlemen win in the first round, they need more than fifty percent of the votes, and if neither of them can achieve it, it goes to another round. Uh, of voting next Friday, a uh, Friday afterwards. So um, they're they're right now both of them trying to keep their own base of voters, but also try and appeal to to the undecided voters. Um, so we're going to have to see how they campaign in the last day and a half that's left of campaigning. And uh, so, what is the relationship like between the Supreme Leader and Rouhani, and and will that have much of an impact on 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 the election? Well. The Supreme Leader has certainly expressed his disappointment at the economic benefits that has been received from the nuclear deal itself. Um, but his job is not to uh, say that he has a preferred candidate, neither has he actually said that. He specifically come out to say he wants to see high voter turnout, but he's not going to tell people which way to vote. Now, in some of his comments in the last two weeks of the campaigning, He's been quite scornful of 
not Rouhani directly, but the policies that Rouhani is uh, trying to advocate for. So the Supreme Leader, in some ways, does fall in line more with the conservative candidates who want to see more domestic production and a self-reliant economy rather than relying on external actors. You mentioned the relationship with the US in terms of inward investment. Where does that currently stand in, in, in a foreign affairs arena and, and particularly in light of the hostile comments by, by the US administration? So essentially, the U.S. White House is conducting a review of its Iran policy at the moment. Um, They have taken a much more confrontational stance in terms of rhetoric they've used to um, message towards Iran than their predecessor in the Obama administration, who was much more... um, much more careful about the use of words and terminology. Um, And this has created quite a tense environment because particularly in the in the regional context of the Middle East, where you do have a lot of conflict zones in which both Iran and the United States are engaged with. So you look at Iraq, you look at Afghanistan, you look at Syria. These are all regions where both Iranian boots and American boots are on the ground in third-party territory. And so this rising level of confrontation has put some people at our knees that there could be more more space now for accidental confrontation between the, the forces from both of these groups or just a an environment in which uh, the relationship between Washington and Tehran becomes more toxic than already is. Sure. Iran, Iran's uh, role in the region has, has been very prominent in the, in the last couple of years in, in some of those areas you mentioned, some of those countries you mentioned. Can we expect more of the same, no matter who wins, uh, particularly in, in, a, in a regional sense? Well, I think we can see some more of the same, that it's not going to be a radical shift in policy um, based on who wins the presidential votes. We have to remember that the president inside of the Islamic Republic is just one of the key figures within that system. Um, actually, foreign policy decisions are made by a security body um, that has representatives from the government, but also from other branches, included un- including unelected branches of uh, of the leadership there, such as the IRGC, which takes quite a different view about the region than say some of the some of the other members in that in that security body. So decisions are going to be made, national security decisions, whether they're domestic or foreign policy, are going to be made by consensus. And whoever is president has a role in steering those decisions. And sometimes they steer it towards more radical and more or more moderate positions, but they're not going to be the sole decision maker. Uh, So the president role is important, but it's just one component of the decision shapers inside of the country. Ali Garin-Maya from the European Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you very much. Now to Russia. And thousands of people took to the streets of Moscow last weekend to protest against a radical plan by the city's mayor to demolish thousands of apartments and rehouse about 1.6 million people in new properties. We're joined on the line by Isabel Gorst in Moscow. Isabel, many people might say that they would love to have their old apartment replaced by a new one. You've met some of these protesters. What is it that they were objecting to? Well, they, they're objecting to quite a lot of things. One is that a very large number of these people who the government proposes to rehouse actually own their properties. And they say their rights, their property rights, which are, are enshrined in the Russian constitution, are being abused because the government's just going to come to them and tell them they have to be moved and even has the right under the law, unless it's amended, to forcibly move them from their homes. So at the, the bottom of the matter is the fact that people don't want their rights abused. It's a new generation of homeowners in Russia. Mm-hmm. 
The second thing they don't like is that the government's going to wants to put up high-rise properties in place of the houses they live in, which are mostly five-story buildings. And they don't like the idea of living in high-rises. They think, probably rightly, that we much less green space around their homes and that it just won't anymore be the nice oldie world in neighborhood atmosphere that they've got used to there. Sure. How high, how high are these new buildings? Well, the government keeps changing. The Moscow city government keeps changing what it says about the new, pro- the new buildings. But they're certainly going to be a lot higher than the five-story buildings that they want to knock down. You've written that these, these current buildings were built in, uh, in the uh, Nikita Khrushchev era in the 50s and 60s. Can you tell us what they're like? Some, to be fair, are in very, very bad condition. Um, but I think that most of the ones which are actually dangerous have already been knocked down under an earlier demolition program. The ones that remain, well, of course, they vary in quality. They're not luxury dwellings. There's no lifts. There's no rubbish chutes. There's no underground parking, of course, because they were built in the 50s and 60s before car ownership was common. But they could be renovated. That's the residents say if, if the government wants to do anything to improve housing in the capital, it should renovate these buildings, not just knock them down and put up something else. The mayor of Moscow um, has a reputation as a man who gets things done in the city. What, what kind of changes has he brought in previously? He's done a, a lot in this city because he has a lot of power, of course, and a lot of money at his disposal. And he wants to make Moscow into what he calls a world-class city, capable of attracting world-class human capital. For instance, he's, he's made pavements inside the city very, very wide and put bike lanes along all the main inner city streets. He's refurbished a big park, Gorky Park, a famous old Soviet park, and made it much more modern with a lovely art gallery in it. He's actually banned the construction of very high-rise buildings in the historic center to try and maintain some of the atmosphere, although that, that rule seems now to be being thrown out of the window. So would it be fair to say he has, you know, some of those obviously positives for the city. What, what's his explanation for this plan? To be fair, some of the buildings are old and could possibly even be dangerous, but What's really astonishing about the program is its huge scale. I mean, knocking down 8,000 buildings and rehousing one and a half million people is really a very, very grand scheme indeed. And there's general suspicion that he's hand in glove with the big construction companies in the city. And of course, it's much better for them if they have a big open space to work with rather than doing piecemeal reconstruction projects. And so that it's seen by a lot of people who are out at that demonstration on Sunday as just another corrupt scheme when the mayor is working in, in partnership with big money in the city rather than working for the people who live there. Tell us a little bit about that demonstration on Sunday and, and, and what the response by authorities has been to it. Well, the demonstration was absolutely huge. It was much bigger than anybody hoped, even the organisers. The organisers had asked permission from the mayor to have a demonstration and he'd said yes which is actually quite unusual. And they'd said they thought about 5,000 people would come. But they now estimated that they, they managed to get 40,000 out. Police say it was a smaller number. Police say it was about 10,000. But I would say it was certainly more than 10,000. I was there myself. There were a huge amount of people. As for the authorities' response, it's been quite rapid. As soon as the march was over, they began voting. Uh, there's going to be a month when you can give your vote as to whether or not you want your house pulled down and be offered another house in the same area. But the voting got underway earlier than was originally said. It got, got underway on Sunday. And on Monday morning, the mayor's office was saying they had, hadn't received any votes against 
the demolition project yet. So, of course, some people are rather suspecting that the votes might be being manipulated, but there's not much way we can tell. You've met many of the protesters and you've written that they're ordinary people, uh, many of them not, not involved in politics. Is there, any, is there a sense of a new, new social or civic movement gathering pace or is it, or is it just this, this one issue really? I think there is certainly a sense of a civic movement beginning to develop in Russia. There have been small civic protests before over the demolition of parks, uh, the demolition of various buildings. Some, on, on a very few occasions, the people have won. Most, most times, their protest, protesters have been sort of brushed aside. This is m- something much bigger than we've ever seen before. Uh, but I think it's important not to get too excited about it in terms of rapid change in Russia, because what's very noticeable about a lot of the protesters is that they don't want to, to do what they call rather naively, perhaps, politicize the meetings. They, I think they see politics as a very dirty game and rather a hopeless game in Russia, and they don't want to align themselves with any particular opposition politician. And in the end, of course, it is a political matter because the mayor, the mayor's post is a political post and the mayor wants to knock down a whole lot of people's homes. That is actually a, a political question. But you've got a huge amount of people who don't want the project to go ahead, but they don't want to get involved in politics. Obviously, Vladimir Putin is nearby. Has he had anything uh, to say about this issue taking place in his backyard? Putin is actually in China. He's been at the One Belt, One Road meeting in Beijing. And today his spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, said he thought the Kremlin's view was that the renovation plan, which is this demolition plan, um, euphemistically called a renovation plan, the Kremlin thinks it's quite positive. And the Kremlin is sure that the mayor's office will take people's concerns into account. Peskov did add that Putin hasn't really been looking at the matter in the last three days, which includes the day when the protest took place, because he's busy in China. So maybe Putin's keeping his his hand open on the matter, seeing how it develops. I think I think it's presenting the authorities with quite a knotty problem with elections coming up next year, including the election for Putin, for the president and for the mayor. And they, do, they don't need a lot of angry people on the streets at this particular point, if at all. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I don't think the protesters are going to get what they want. I think a lot of people are going to lose their homes, but perhaps not the original one and a half million people. Maybe that'll be scaled back, I would say. Isabel Gorston, Moscow, thank you for joining us. Thanks to today's contributors, Suzanne Lynch, Ali Garinmea and Isabel Gorst. Thanks also to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and producer Declan Conlon. I'm Dave McKechnie. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on whichever podcast platform you use or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcast.